Well, good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor here, and uh, I'm excited to start this new series. Um, if you want to take notes, you can do that in the bulletin. If you open the bulletin up, there's a place there to take notes. Um, we're going to be looking at a bunch of different passages in the Bible and throughout history. So um, I want to start by saying that the Bible, uh, the Bible creates tension in our lives. Okay, there's tension that comes because of the Bible for, I would say, almost for everybody here today, both Christians and non-Christians alike. Um, most people think the Bible has good things to say, but most people also have serious concerns about it. And so if you're a Christian like me, you think, okay, wait, so you have this book, but you're afraid to trust it. Um, you're afraid because you know that this book says things that you can't defend. There are things in this book that make you feel afraid that if somebody finds out about it and thinks that you believe them, they're going to think less of you. Um, you think it maybe is outdated. It's out of step with science. It's backwards in terms of what it has to say about sexuality in our day. Um, plus, you know what? There are people in the world that we know in our city who are really bad examples of Jesus, and they love this book. And there's a little bit of fear, right, that the more devoted you are to this book, the more like them you're going to feel like, or the more you think people are going to think that you're just like those people who are obnoxious, who are mean, who are, I mean, just offensive. You don't want to be identified with those people, but you're concerned because people who are devoted to the book are identified with those kinds of people. And I think even for non-Christians, this is one of the reasons you're not Christian is because you know the Bible says some of these things. You've heard the Bible being dismissed or just ignored. Um, and so, again, this creates tension because we see the Bible, and yet we think it has good things to say, but then there's all this other stuff in it. And you know, the question is, what's the alternative? Like, what do you do? I think for a lot of Christians, it's just a lot easier to say, you know what, well, there's, there's just parts of the Bible that I like, but then there's a lot of stuff that I'm not sure about. And that's the tack that a lot of Christians take. We take kind of an a la carte approach where we're in the buffet line as we read the Bible. Yes, I'll read this. No, I'm not going to read that. Yeah, I like this part of it, but this other stuff, I'm just going to ignore. I don't understand it. I'm embarrassed by it. And so I'm just going to ignore that part. And, uh, and a lot of Christians live and pray as though those parts of the Bible don't exist because they just don't know what else to do. Um, and I get this because I've done this myself. In my 26-year relationship with the Bible, um, and this is what I've learned. There's a problem with doing this a la carte approach to the Bible. When we do this, we actually take the power out of the Bible. The Bible stops being something that can transform and renew us on the inside. And the reason that happens is because we now are the ones in charge. And when we're picking and choosing what we think is okay and what's not, um, we become the judge. And the Bible then can't challenge us to grow in ways that we don't want it to. The Bible can't present to us truths that it needs us to wrestle with, and we simply don't want to deal with them. Um, and the problem isn't just with the Bible, but the God of the Bible stops being God and becomes a sort of Stepford wife. Stepford wives look good, but if you have a Stepford wife, what you don't have is a relationship. There is zero personal intimacy. 
And so I think we're stuck. And just to put it clearly, this is the tension that we're dealing with. See here if we can go to the next slide that has the tension that we're dealing with. There we go, the tension we live in. I can't trust the Bible with all its problems, but I need the Bible to change me. I need the Bible's power to change me, and I want an authentic relationship with God. Anybody relate to this? Well, that's why we're doing this series. Okay, this series is going to help speak to this tension. Okay, it's called Questions Answered, Shining Light on the Bible's Toughest Problems. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to tackle what I think are the toughest issues. These are the questions that you have about the Bible that you've sent in to us. We're going to talk about the wrath of God. We're going to talk about science in the Bible. We're going to talk about homosexuality. We're going to talk about the existence of evil in a world where God is supposed to be in control and loving. Um, But before we look at these specific issues, we need to start by asking ourselves sort of the bigger question, and that is, why should we trust the Bible in the first place? How can we trust the Bible? How do we get the Bible anyways? There's all kinds of things that are told about where this book came from and how it's come to us. And we want to answer that question. We want to wrestle with that tension today. And we're going to do this by looking, number one, at what does the Bible say? Number two, how does Jesus treat the Bible? And then third, we're going to say, well then, do we now have the Bible that was written back then? Okay, those are the questions we're going to answer. And so first... We're going to look and just do a little bit of a survey of the Old Testament. Okay, and I want to show you some figures. The Old Testament presents itself as though it is God's written word. Okay, the phrase, thus thus says the Lord, is, is in the Bible 415 times. Okay, so in 39 different books, over 400 times, it says, thus says the Lord. It also says the word of the Lord 256 times. It says, God said 52 times. It talks about the law of the Lord 21 times. And then it says, it talks about the law of Moses also 21 times. And there on that last thing, we see that there's an addition there. We, we see that the Bible recognizes that though it's written by God, it's written uh, by God, but it's written through people. And so the law of the Lord is the law of Moses because God inspired Moses to write on his behalf. And we even saw this, if you're doing the Old Testament reading and city Bible reading, in Amos 3.7, we saw this. It says, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And so what we see from this verse is that God does things. He acts in history. And a lot of times it's hard to figure out what is he doing. Try to figure out why is he doing what he's doing. And so what this verse tells us is that God has from the beginning, not just acted in history, not just spoken, but he's spoken through the prophets. He has spoken through people that he has called to know his will, to know the secret things that are behind what he's doing, to know what he's trying to say and to communicate it on his behalf. And so God communicates to us through the prophets And so back to this, I mean, if you add these up, this is 900 times in the Old Testament. 900 times God, it explicitly says that God is speaking to us in the Old Testament. He's revealing to us who he is, how he thinks and feels about life, how he thinks and feels about human flourishing, and what he does as he relates to people on earth. 
Okay, and so this is uh, the Bible 900 times, over and over and over again. The Old Testament is the written word of God. And so just a couple of other figures. In the Old Testament, you've got 39 books from Genesis through Malachi. You've got over 30 different authors, and it's written over the course of 1,000 years. So estimated dates, Moses wrote uh, Genesis around 1400 B.C., and the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, was written in 400 B.C., And these 39 books, these were the Bible at the time of Jesus. And so I want to look and ask the question, because, you know, there's all kinds of scholarly stuff that's been done on the Bible, but I think for us, what is vital for us to ask and to answer is what did Jesus think about the Old Testament? Or have you ever wondered that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What did Jesus think about this book or this set of books um, some of which is pretty dark, some of which has things I'm uncomfortable with, some of which says things about God that, frankly, don't make me happy, and sometimes I hope other people don't know that that's in there because I don't have to speak about it. How does Jesus feel about all of that? And so here, I want you to write this down as we look at Jesus. The first thing that we know about what Jesus' take on the Old Testament is, is that Jesus thinks that the Old Testament is God's written word. Okay? Jesus says that the Old Testament is God's written word. Let's look at Matthew 5, verses 17 through 19. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law of the prophets is two sections of the Old Testament. He said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And a dot and an iota, that's like a crossing of the T and a dotting of the I. Okay, And then he goes on and he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus believed that the Old Testament was God's written word and its authority would remain for all of human history. Jesus believed that it was authoritative and it was inspired by God. Okay, the second thing Jesus says about the Old Testament, you could write this down, is that Jesus believed that the Old Testament prepares us to see and to know Jesus. Okay, he says this in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. And so the Old Testament, according to Jesus, it's like a film festival giving us previews of Jesus who would come. And it records the history of God's relationship with ancient Israel, and it previews and predicts and even pines for the Savior who was going to come and save the world. And so this is Jesus' take on the Old Testament. It's God's written word. It prepares us to see and to know him. And so Jesus endorsed the Old Testament, and he followed it himself. Okay, this is a big deal. Okay, this is a big deal because if you believe that the Old Testament is God's written word, if you believe that the Old Testament points to Jesus, then you're in good company. Jesus agrees with you. And his endorsement of the Old Testament should strengthen your faith so that you can read it to know God and to know Jesus through it. And so Jesus comes, and then the New Testament gets written. 
Okay, and then so we have the Old Testament. Now the New Testament. The New Testament is the authority of God expressed through Jesus. Okay, Jesus comes and he actually claims to be God. Let me show you a verse or two. In John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, it says, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is saying that he is God in the flesh. He is God come to walk this earth. He has the authority of God. And so when Jesus endorses the Old Testament, this is God on earth saying, you can trust the Old Testament. But he's come to do even more than that. In John 8, 58, Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And when he says this, he is saying that before Abraham was born 2,000 years before Jesus was walking on the earth. He said 2,000 years before, even before Abraham was born, Jesus says, I am, which is a reference some of you may know to what God revealed himself to be at the burning bush with Moses. And so Jesus is saying, though I'm human and I'm walking on the earth, before Abraham was, I have been eternally existing because I am God. And so Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus accepted worship. He did what only God could do on earth. He forgave sins. And so Jesus, when he was alive, he was on par with the authority of the Old Testament. And Jesus even taught us that some parts of the Old Testament are going to continue to be enforced on the people of God in the New Testament. And some parts of the Old Testament are actually going to expire. They're going to be fulfilled and they're going to be set aside. Um, and they're not going to apply any longer after his death and his resurrection. And so this was Jesus teaching us. And as you read through the Bible, you see him doing these things in the Gospels. Well, in the same way that God appointed prophets in the Old Testament to speak for him, Jesus also appointed prophets to speak for him. He, Jesus chose the 12. They were called the apostles. And Jesus called them to represent him. Jesus trained them and made them like his ambassadors. They could represent him. They spoke with his authority. When they spoke, it was Jesus' authority. When they did stuff, they did miracles. They actually were able to, to do things that were of great authority because they had Jesus' spirit. And these 12 didn't just do miracles, didn't just heal people, but they also preached God's word. They preached to the people. They preached the good news of Jesus and their spoken word established the New Testament church. Okay, what they preached, they I mean, they walked around, they proclaimed, um, and they established by their teaching, they established the New Testament church. You can read about this in the book of Acts. The apostles began to preach, and then they continued to exercise the authority of God, also not just in their preaching, but in their writing. Okay, they not only preached to crowds, but they began to write. And, they, and, and when they wrote, their written words were placed at the same level of their preaching. Okay, let me show this to you. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15, it says this. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And so we see here that the letters that the New Testament, that the apostles were writing were as authoritative as their preaching. 
their preaching had the power and the spirit of Jesus backing it up, and so did their letters. And we actually see this in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. It says this. This is Peter talking, right? Peter the apostle, on this rock I'll build my church. It says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> if you've ever read anything in the New Testament that was written by Paul and been like, what in the world is he talking about? I have no idea what this means. This is hard to understand. If you've ever felt that way, guess what? The apostle Peter agrees with you. You're in good company. Some of this stuff is hard to understand. And he goes on, he says, which the, the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. Look at this. As they do the other scriptures. So here we see that the apostles themselves recognize that their words, Paul recognized his own letters, were authoritative as the preached word, but Peter is also recognizing and acknowledging that Paul's letters, Paul's writings, were on par with the rest of Scripture. So they knew, they had a sense, they understood that they were actually writing the word of God. And so that's what the New Testament is. The New Testament is the written version of God's word. It's the written version of the authority of Jesus that he gave to his apostles. And so if you look at the New Testament, um, most of the New Testament was written by the apostles. The books that aren't named after the 12 apostles are written either by the apostles' close associates um, or even their secretaries through dictation. And so like Mark was Peter's secretary, for instance, um, Luke was a close associate of Paul. Um, and then James and Jude were both the half-brothers of Jesus. And so they got in because they're like, hey, we grew up with him, right? Come on, our stuff gets in too. And so it did. Um, and so now here's the question about the New Testament. Because Jesus endorsed the books of the Old Testament, um, how do we know which books belong in the New Testament and which ones don't? Right? You ever wonder that? I mean, actually, weren't there arguments over which of the books were inspired? Like, didn't they have fights and wars? And weren't there, like, political factions that were pushing for some books to get in and other books not to get in? And because there was one group that was in power, it sort of, like, governed the whole thing and it sort of squashed the minority opinions and pushed its own agenda through. Like, have you ever heard this? This is prevalent. This is, a, this is a telling of the story. I mean, some people think, like, some people would ask, didn't the church not even decide on which books were in the New Testament, the final list until 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea? Isn't that when they finally determined which books were in and which books were out? I mean, a lot of people say this. You will hear this in the media. You'll hear this. Um, a lot of people think this. But the historical facts show that the answer to all of those questions is No. No, there were no arguments over which books were inspired. The church did not vote on the final list of New Testament books in 325 AD. Um, actually, the definitive list of New Testament books was published in 140 AD. Okay, 140 AD. And the list wasn't published until then because until then, no one had questioned it. 
Okay, but in 140, there was a man named Marcion, and he rejected the God of the Old Testament, and he rejected most of the teachings of the New Testament. And he said, actually, out of all the stuff that's been written, only 10 of the books that are in the New Testament are actually inspired by God. Um, and he wasn't even satisfied with all of those books. So he chose the letters of Paul, and he chose um, some of the book of Luke. So those were the list, and he published that list, and he said, these are actually the authority of Jesus in writing. And so in 140, the church responded to Marcion's list, not by determining which books were supposed to be in and which ones were supposed to be out, but the church responded to Marcion's list by reaffirming the books that were already accepted by the church. Do you understand the difference? Like they didn't get together and go, oh, man, what do we do? Like, well, we should probably figure out which books are in and which books are out. Since Marcion's published this list, we know he's wrong, so we better figure this out now. No, 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 that's not what happened. What happened was they said, Marcion, what are you doing? We have these books that we have received as authoritative, and we've gotten these from Jesus and his apostles. Your list is wrong, and so we're going to publish what we have always known to be true. And what they published was the 27 books that we have now. Um, these are the books that were always received as scripture from the time that they were written. I want to give you a little bit of an illustration of this just so you can understand how to think about this. Um, my family, um, we have a portable zip line. It's about 200 feet when we set it up. <clears throat> and we, uh, we sometimes go into the into Switzer Canyon at the end of our street. We set it up. We, we rig it up in between trees, and we go up the slope, and it's, it's just awesome. It's fun. It's a good time. Now, when we started doing this, we found a couple of trees, and then we said, hey, you know what? It might be better over there. And so then we found these two trees that were great, and that was fabulous, good rides. And then we realized, hey, you know what? A little bit farther up the slope, and we'd get an even better ride. And so we wrapped it to the tree up above. And then the next time we went down, we were like, you know what? That was so much better. Let's go the next tree up. And so we started doing this, and one of the times that we started doing this, um, one of the guys who lived in the house up at the top of the slope started coming down the hill. And this wasn't unusual. We've had all kinds of people who go through the canyon who stop, and they're like, hey, can I try that? Or what the heck are you guys doing? You're crazy, or do you realize that you, you don't have a safety harness there for your kids? And, and I deal with all that stuff. So... Um, and I told him, like, hey, how you doing? Like, I'm expecting him to want to want to give a ride, and we love it when people get, get rides. But instead, this is what he said. He, he quote, I wrote this down because it was so amazing. He said, I really like your ingenuity and that you're enjoying this zip line. I'm like, uh-oh, here it comes. Um, it looks like a lot of fun, but I think you've crossed over my property line. And I don't want to sound negative, but I'm concerned that if you're on my property, I'm legally liable if someone gets hurt. He didn't come down because he needed to figure out where his property line was, right? He came down because he knew where his property line was, and he knew that we had crossed it. And so he came down to let us know that we had crossed the line and what we were doing wasn't acceptable. Friends, that's what happened in the early church. That's what actually happens with all church councils and declarations. 
the, the councils, they're not making up new things. They are clearly stating what the church has always believed. You follow? And so the church's response to Marcion wasn't drawing, it wasn't drawing the line by deciding on which books belong in the New Testament, but they were restating where the line had always been by restating the 27 books that had always been received as the written word of God in the New Testament. And so, what we have then, along with the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, which is 27 books, Matthew through Revelation, eight authors. And I, I don't know, I mean, I've, I never knew there were eight authors in the New Testament. I never counted up the New Testament. I always knew the whole Bible was about 40 plus, um, but eight authors in the New Testament. I, I felt like it would be bigger than that, but it's not. Um, written over 50 years, starting roughly in 48 AD, um, the book of Revelation, there's debate, uh, but 95 is a conservative late date for the book of Revelation. And so that's what we have in the New Testament. And so what I want you to see, what I want you to see here is that the Old Testament was approved by Jesus and the New Testament is the authority of Jesus. Okay? The Old Testament was approved by Jesus. The New Testament is the authority of Jesus. Now, even if you agree with me that they had an approved and an inspired Bible back in 95 AD, how can we trust what we have today? Right? It's another question, isn't it? It's not the same question. Because you can say, all right, well, fine. You got Jesus' endorsement on the old, and you've got this thing that you're telling me about Marcion um, covering the new. But man, how can you trust that in 2,000 years the message hasn't been corrupted? And anyone who has played the telephone game knows that in a circle of 10 people, sometimes less, whispering to each other, if that message can get corrupted, how could the Bible possibly last 2,000 years of copying and copying and language translation and not be corrupt? That's a good question. If you're not asking that question, you should. <laughs> you should ask that question. And so let's, I want to answer that for you. I want to give you the answers so that you can understand what the data is that we have that can get us to an answer. So let's think about the Old Testament first. Okay? For the longest time, the earliest copy of the Old Testament that we had was from 935 A.D. So let's just round that to 1,000, Okay? So the earliest copy of the Old Testament that we had was from 1,000 years after Jesus was born, okay? So that's about 1,500 years after the last book of the Old Testament was written. So we're dealing with an Old Testament that was, you know, the copy that we had was 1,500 years after it was finished. That's not good, <laughs> right? That's... I mean, if that's what you got, you're having a hard time saying, no, 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 this is the authentic Old Testament. This is what Jesus endorsed. People are like, ah, I don't know. It's been quite a while, don't you think? Um, and scholars would defend the accuracy of this copy of the Old Testament by describing the painstaking process that the copyists went through. They would talk about how exact they were, the strides they went through to check and to recheck the copies. I mean, if you want to play the telephone game, it would be instead of like whispering something in their ear, it would be someone 
shouting out every single letter of every single line and then counting every letter and every certain number of letters, they would stop and go, what is this, what is this letter that you have? And they would shout it back. I mean, it was this crazy, like, uh, they went through so much effort to check and to recheck the copies to make sure that none of them had any errors. If any error was found in anything, immediately it was burned. And so scholars talked about this process. It's, it's actually pretty impressive. Um, but I don't care how much of that, of that line of thinking that you'd have. Like, come on, 1,500 years? Like, there's no way 1,500 years could yield anything that you could trust. But then, in 1947, there was a shepherd who was throwing rocks into a cave in the Middle East. He was trying to find his goat, and he was throwing these rocks to scare the goat to move so he could find out if the goat was in the cave. And he threw a rock, and what he heard was pottery shattering. And he went into this cave, and he found what became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this collection of scrolls was approximately 1,000 documents. Okay, there were 1,000 documents, including copies and portions of the Old Testament that were dated to 200 B.C. Okay, so that's 200 years after the last book of the Old Testament was written. And so what do you think they did? Well, they, they took the, 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 the copy they had from 1000 A.D. and they hid it and they said, we don't want to know. Like, we'd actually, you know what, ignorance is bliss. We'd rather just not know. Uh, no, they didn't do that. They pulled it out and they said, let's compare. Let's see what we have. And so they took the Dead Sea Scroll, copies of the Old Testament. They compared it to what they had. And guess what? There was practically zero difference. There was practically zero difference. And you can look this stuff up. Scholars have said, here's just one quote, after years of careful study, it has been concluded that the Dead Sea Scrolls give substantial confirmation that our Old Testament has been accurately preserved. The scrolls were found to be almost identical with the text from 935 A.D. So, I mean, I know there's a lot of detail. There's a few stories thrown in. Like, I hope you're staying with me. The point here is that the Old Testament that we have today is an incredibly reliable copy of the original Old Testament, the one that Jesus himself endorsed. So that's the Old Testament. But what about the New? Well, with the New Testament, there is insane manuscript evidence. Um, what do I mean by that? There are thousands of manuscripts of New Testament documents. We have more do copies of the New Testament than any other book in the ancient world combined. If you take every book that we have copies of and you add them up, it doesn't even come close to what we have from the New Testament. Let me show you what I mean. Okay. This is the top 10 books that aren't the Bible, or that aren't the New Testament that we have, okay? So we've got Euripides, Julius Caesar, Aristophanes. Some of these you might recognize, some of these you're like, I have no idea what the heck this is. Um, so these are the books that we have from the ancient world and when they were written, okay, the date they were written, and then we have the number of copies, okay? So the 10th most, what, the 10th, the, the book that we have the 10th most copies of, we have nine copies of it. Okay, 
Number nine, we have 10 copies, 10 copies, 20 copies, 20 copies, 49 copies, woohoo! Sophocles, we got 193 of those. Demosthenes, we got 200. But Homer, Homer is like the, 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 the prized child of the ancient world. We have 643 copies of the Iliad, all right? The book that we have the most copies of from the ancient world is the New Testament. Ready for this? We have 24,000 copies of the New Testament. <laughs> That's worth applauding. That's worth applauding. I mean, do I need, I, I feel like I can just like drop the mic and walk off, right? <laughs> um, 24,000 copies. I mean, I couldn't even create a chart that would like illustrate this because, you know, it's, you can't, it's like this, right? Compare, you know, you got it. Well, so here's what's interesting too is that aside from these 24,000 copies, scholars have shown that if we didn't have any of these copies, let's say all 24,000 of these copies were gone, we didn't have any of them, we would still have the entire New Testament quoted in the authors of the first and second centuries. So other people that wrote books quoted the Bible, like other pastors, other leaders of the church. And so even without these 24,000 copies, we would have almost the entire New Testament um, written out, quoted from other sources. And so it's just crazy. It's crazy how much evidence we have of the New Testament. Okay, then there's one other thing I want to show you. Um, and that is, you know, these two columns that are blank. Let's talk about this. Um, scholars have also said, like, these are the earliest copies that we have. Okay? So, let's go back to, um, let's take Julius Caesar, okay? Because <clears throat> Julius Caesar, he wrote the Gallic Wars. So, it's a history book that no reputable historian scholar would ever deny its, 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 its credibility, would never deny its authenticity. It was written in 60 B.C., roughly, the earliest of these 10 copies that we have of it were written, the earliest copy we have is from 900 AD, right? So it's kind of like the Old Testament thing, right, before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so look at all these things, um, 1100 AD, 1100 AD, 1000 AD, 1100 AD. Um, these are the earliest copies that we have. So they're coming from 1500 years later, 1400 years later, 13, 1000, 960, 920. And again, Homer, prize of the ancient world, we have a copy of the Iliad from 400, dated 400 BC. So that's only 500 years after it was originally written. You ready for the New Testament? The earliest copy that we have from the New Testament is from 125 BC. That's 30 years after the New Testament was finished being written. What's the point here? Well, there are a lot of people that want to deny the authenticity of the Bible. There are all kinds of people that want to say, like, what we have is not what God wrote or isn't what God inspired. They want to say that the thing has been changed, that the thing has been, you know, all these sorts of things. When you look at the evidence, though, what you learn is that there are people who might have other agendas as they interpret the data that we have. 
The Bible is, is more than a book. Um, the Bible is, is the loving and powerful authority of God set free in the world. Like, that's what the Bible is. The Bible is God revealing himself. And a God who has made the world, a God who is powerful enough to make this world, a God who is willing to inspire human beings to write on his behalf, is strong enough to preserve his word so that we can have it and have confidence in it today. And just a note on translations. The translations that we have today, they're not translations of translations of translations. Um, Just so you know, the Old Testament translations that we have now, they are translated directly from the Hebrew that Jesus endorsed. Okay? The Greek that we have, like the New Testament, the the English New Testaments that we have are translated directly from the Greek in which it was written. Seminaries, most seminaries still teach Hebrew and Greek. Um, I took Hebrew and Greek when I was in seminary. So when I preach, I can translate from the Hebrew Old Testament and from the Greek New Testament. I don't mention this a lot in my sermons, primarily because the English translations that we have are fantastic. We use the English Standard Version. It's a great English translation that comes from the Greek and from the Hebrew. And so the idea that that it's translation upon translation upon translation, I mean, it's just, you want to love people when you're talking to them. You don't want to embarrass them, but you do want to share with them the truth. That you know what? There's actually more to the story than what you're saying. Um, there's evidence. And if you just want to take the time to look at the evidence, you'll see that the English translations of the Bible are phenomenal. They're coming directly from an Old Testament Hebrew that is better attested than any other book. It's like if you don't want to take the Old Testament, then you literally can't say that anything happened in history ever. Same thing with the new. And so, what I want you to see, we saw the Old Testament was approved by Jesus. The New Testament is the authority of Jesus. We now have what God inspired. We now have what God inspired. So you can trust your English Bible. You can trust it because... There is solid historical, scientific facts that underpin the texts that we are translating from. If someone wants to be scientific about the Bible, you can say, yeah, you know what? Like, you need to do some scientific study of archaeology and manuscript history. You need to actually look at the science of it and see how the Bible is attested. Now, this doesn't mean that interpreting the Bible is always easy, okay? Just because we say that God inspired this and we have what God inspired doesn't mean that everything in here is all of a sudden then easy to to swallow, okay? And we're going to spend the rest of the series looking at these other issues where we're going to see, gosh, why does God command Israel to go and destroy nations? Why does he command them to rip open pregnant women and dash their babies on the rocks. 
We're going to talk about that next week. So I, I just want you to know that saying this doesn't answer all the questions. You still need to actually do business now with the God who inspired this and the God that the Bible presents. But this is God's written word to humanity. Um, he inspired it, and he's preserved it so that we can know him. Um, this is written for you. It's written for you so that you can read it, you can know God, and I want you to submit to it. And I know that by talking about some of the worst things or the things that are hardest for us to grasp or hardest for us to stomach in the Bible doesn't make you want to submit to it. Like, I get that. I really do. And there are things that make me uncomfortable that we're going to talk about in this series. Um, but what's, what's amazing to me What's amazing to me is, especially when we look at the New Testament, there's a whole other way to think about um, whether we should trust the New Testament. And one of the strongest arguments for me to trust the New Testament is that the 12 apostles and their close associates, like they didn't just write the New Testament as a way for them to get ahead. Um, they wrote the New Testament in their own blood. And we've talked about this before, if you've been here before. But if you haven't, the people who wrote the New Testament were not starting something new. This wasn't like L. Ron Hubbard writing Dianetics and selling millions of copies and becoming rich and wealthy. Um, there was no riches for the people that wrote the New Testament. Actually, all there was was suffering, torture for them and their families, and ultimately death. Every single one of them, except for one, uh, were killed. They were killed for what they wrote. They were killed because they testified, not about something they were hoping was going to happen in the future, but they were killed because they testified about something that happened in the past. They weren't writing about the hope of heaven, and if you just believe this, we think that God's going to bless us in the future. What they were writing was something that happened, that they were claiming happened to Jesus. They were saying that he rose from the dead and we saw him. And so they knew whether or not it was true. They knew whether or not it was lying. And for all of us, when it comes to the point, when we're at gunpoint, when, we're, when our life is on the line, we're not going to continue to affirm something that we know is a lie. And every single one of them continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus in, into death. And so they gave their lives proving the historicity of what happened. And through their lives, through their writing, the world has changed. Individual lives have been transformed. People have found hope. Because if this is true, if Jesus really did live the perfect life for us, if Jesus really did die the death that our sins deserve, then there is hope for us. Then there is in the world, there has been injected into the world a selfless and self-giving love that cares about you. If Jesus came, then there actually is meaning in suffering, right? Because Jesus has shown us that the pathway into suffering leads into glory. There is hope on the other side of your suffering. 
sometimes in this life, but definitely in the life to come. These guys gave their lives to prove that Jesus rose from the dead so that there would be a new way of being human. So that people who don't know each other or have things in common with each other would live and act like a family that cares and sacrifices and gives and gives and gives because the God of this universe gave everything for them. That's why you need to read the Bible. Like, that's why you need to submit to it. Because at the peak, the climax of the Bible is God himself coming and suffering, taking on our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that we can have hope, so that we can have a future, so that we can be loved in a way that accepts us exactly as we are and begins to work in us, to change us. Friends, I believe that when we get a hold of this, when we let this love transform us, we will turn San Diego upside down. Your home will be different if you live out this love. If you submit to this book, if you let this book be your authority, Jesus will change you and transform you to be more like him. Your home will be changed. Your workplace, you'll become an influence and and you'll become uh, this this injection of selfless, self-giving love that will change the people around you. I mean, at home, in the workplace, in our neighborhoods. Friends, our vision as a church is renewed people, right, making a renewed city. We want to see San Diego renewed. Well, how does that happen? It happens one person at a time as we submit to this book and let it have its will in our lives. When we do that, we begin to look like Jesus. We show him to others, and the city will be renewed. Pray with me. Father, thank you that even in my own fear of looking into the data, um, that you have preserved your word in a way that makes our hearts sing. God, thank you for giving us your word and for preserving it so that we can know what you're like, so that we can rejoice in the salvation that you have brought to us in Jesus. And I know, Father, you know actually all of the questions that we have. You know all of our reservations. And I pray that today would be the beginning and over the next six weeks that we would be able time and time again to come back to your word and look at these hard issues, these problems that make us wrestle with who you are, that make us hesitate to want to follow you. I pray that you would meet us in this place. Lord, help us to be able to read, even with City Bible reading this week, the book of Matthew, help us to read that this week and to see you, Jesus, willing to come, willing to suffer, willing to give everything for us. We love you. We pray that you would meet us this week as we read your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen.